Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, May 28th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might well have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everyone. And we welcome back to the podcast Aaron Mershon of Stat News. Great to see you, Aaron. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, we'll have my Bill of the Month interview with Kaiser Health News' Phil Galewitz. The patient this month went to the emergency room with a suspected case of COVID-19, which shouldn't have been a billable event, and you can guess what happened. But first, this week's news. We actually have some non-COVID news to talk about this week, but we need to start with the grim milestone of 100,000 Americans now documented as having died of the disease. And while some say that number is overblown, there's better evidence that it's an undercount of people who died without ever getting tested, even though they had obvious COVID symptoms and even tentative diagnoses. Among those people was the 96-year-old mother of our editor-in-chief, Libby Rosenthal, who wrote a very moving piece about it in this week's New York Times opinion section. I will post a link to that on the podcast page. Meanwhile, the White House delivered what it's calling its testing strategy report to Congress as required by one of the early COVID relief bills. And Congress, shall we say, was unimpressed. The report says the federal government will distribute things like swabs and viral transport media, but leave the majority of responsibility for testing with the state's said the statement from Democratic leaders and committee leaders in both the House and Senate, quote, this disappointing report confirms that President Trump's national testing strategy is to deny the truth that there aren't enough tests and supplies, reject responsibility, and dump the burden onto the states. So my question is, is this a federalism thing from the Trump administration, or does the administration truly believe that that public health is not a national responsibility, but one that should be on the state. I think it's been both. Um, we have seen since the very beginning a um, reluctance to um, nationalize the response on multiple levels, um, whether it was getting ventilators or signing the Defense Production Act to boost production of masks and surgical gowns and other PPE, whether it was the testing rollout everything. It is, he encouraged states to um, compete against one another, um, which created more chaos, more expense, more delays. So from the very beginning of this, um, there has been a, it's your problem states. Um, I forgot the exact quote. What was it? We're not your, does anyone remember the exact, we're not your suppliers? Or, And then the, the, the comment of, you know, it's our national stockpile, not the states. I mean, what that is was Jared the nation? Kushner. That was yeah. Jared. But what's the nation if not States. So um, there's, you know, from the early testing to the current reopening, there's been a, a no national response, um, a lot of fragmentation, a lot of confusion, a lot of missed messages, and a lot of missed opportunities. You know, I, I look around the world to sort of compare what's happening in other countries. And, you know, they have a there are a lot of the same problems, certainly the nursing home problem. You know, the problem with with people in institutions has been similar in other countries. Um, there have been sort of similar problems with either lack of testing or inability to get testing to where it's most needed. But 
in every other country, there seems to it seems to be the national government that's doing the leading, whether or not they're doing a really good job of it. Um, it here, I mean, there was I forget which which uh, story it was. You know, one of the state officials said this should not be the Hunger Games. I mean that there there really is this you know that states are actually literally being pitted against each other in their ability to get things that they need to deal with this disease. Well, and I think we've seen them get really creative. I mean, because I've been staying in Maryland, I've been watching Maryland, and you know you've seen Governor Larry Hogan, um, you know, going to South Korea to try to pick, procure some testing. Um, so. They've had to go outside their norms. I mean, that testing eventually was approved the, by the the Food and Drug Administration, but you know, it, it, the states aren't the ones, and a governor particularly who are out there, you know, able to tell if a, a test works. Um, and you know, they sort of need the federal government to be doing a little bit more of the vetting of this stuff too. I mean, I, I'm not questioning the test that that were bought, but there is that possibility for, for something to go wrong. Yeah, there was a very nice Kaiser story this morning, I believe, um, looking at state and municipal governments buying tests on their own and trying to do their own validation tests. And I think that is sort of raises a lot of questions about who is appropriate to vet these tests. And I think the answer, yes, is the federal government. Although I will point out that in Maryland, Governor Hogan is doing to the counties what President Trump is doing to the states. And now the counties in Maryland, particularly the hard hit counties um, right around Washington, D.C., including my own, are having trouble getting their hands on those tests that the governor got. And there was a story just this morning about uh, emergency, you know, medical uh, technicians not being able to get N95 masks because they're trying to keep this as the county is trying to keep a big enough stockpile, but they're being asked to basically use not the most protective masks when they're sitting in an ambulance with a likely COVID patient. So it, there's still, you know, we're, we're four months into this basically, and there still seems to be not a lot of organization. I mean, there's this is the idea that, that yes, government, they all say, you know, government works best at the lowest level. But what we're seeing is that when it trickles down to the lowest level, they're having the most difficulty dealing with this. And those who oppose a national response say, you know, it shouldn't be one size fits all, but it doesn't have to be one size fits all. You can have a national response um, taking into account that the Bronx is different from the Montana. You're not going to send as many ventilators to Montana as you are to New York. You're not going to send, I mean, you're going to have different rules for who, if you have rules and guidelines for opening up, communities can do them at at different paces. That was the original CDC gate plan, which got thrown by the wayside. Nobody's doing it, or very few counties are doing it. So it isn't one size fits all. It's a structure um, it's using resources, coming up with a national strategy, coming up with the national resources, avoiding duplication, figuring out, okay, here's what we have in the country, here's what we need in the country, and here within the country is where we need to allocate it based on the data that's showing us where the need is. Instead, it's been it's been chaotic, and we have 100,000 dead, and it's not stopping at 100,000. We had 100,000 dead yesterday. I haven't looked at the Hopkins map today, but it's a, probably around 101,000. Tomorrow it'll be maybe the death rate is – the daily count Slowing. is dropping, but – um, it's slowing. So, you know, maybe it's not another thousand. Maybe it's only 800. I haven't looked, but it didn't stop. You know, 100 was just a reminder of what we're in the midst of. All right. Well, 
Next topic I am calling social distancing is so last month. We saw videos and pictures from around the country over the Memorial Day weekend of throngs of maskless people crowding beaches and bars and boardwalks as if nothing whatever was happening. When queried by reporters, they said they didn't think they were at risk or the entire pandemic is overblown or their state is safe. My temptation is to ask what is wrong with these people, but I will ask it this way instead. What is it about the public health message that has failed so badly here? Well, it starts from the top, right? I mean, the president's not even wearing a mask when he goes anywhere. Um, And I think um, a lot of, at least the people that I know who um, are participating in these kinds of things and and not social distancing when they go out and things like that, they are Trump supporters and um, I think would be influenced by him wearing one um, versus making fun of Joe Biden for wearing one instead. So I think that that's where it starts, certainly, is that there hasn't really been a strong message. I mean, I, I have seen them. I've seen states and things saying we still need to be social distancing or or Anthony Fauci, but there's been nothing strong saying, you know, this is um, this is what's going to allow us to continue to go forward. Right. The, there has been no public health messaging, very little public health messaging. The White House had daily briefings. They stopped several weeks ago. We're all blurry on time, but it was about a month ago now. We have barely seen public health officials. Dr. Burks, Deborah Burks, was on the White House podium for maybe five or six minutes the Friday afternoon before Memorial Day weekend when the president talked about opening churches and houses of worship. He left. She came on for just a couple of minutes before the White House press secretary gently told her that's enough. And she did talk about how you do need to maintain social distance, that as we reopen, we reopen gradually. We're, we're, we're resuming some economic activity, but we're not going back to what was normal life, that we have a new normal. But we haven't heard her say that. We haven't seen her. The message was supposed to have been open gradually, open you know, while monitoring things really carefully, and stay at home if you can stay home. Engage in that first step of reopening, and then the second step, and then the third step, but that it is limited. You know, it's nice out, it's May, you can be outside, you don't have to be cooped up as much, but you're not supposed to be with large groups of people, you're still supposed to be wearing a mask, et cetera, et cetera, and we're not hearing that. And, you know, we're at the stage where, you know, Mitch McConnell putting out a statement last night saying, you should wear a mask, that that's a political act. And they're all saying, oh, space between the Republican leadership and the White House over a mask, over a simple public health step that is just, it's not even a great public health step. It's one of many things we need to be doing to protect ourselves and others. Well, I think we're seeing desperation too to reopen. I mean, you know, Joanne, your team had a good story on a lot of the states that are fudging the data so they can reopen DC and being one of them. And I think that that is a message to people as well. Like, oh, they're not that worried. We didn't meet all the all the things we actually need to, but we're reopening anyway. I mean, if I was a casual uh, consumer of the news, I might assume that that means it's totally fine for me to do whatever I want to do. That would that was exactly the point I was going to make is that, you know, aren't some of these states kind of asking for it when they reopen the beach and the boardwalk and they say it's Memorial Day and you should get out and have fun, but you should wear a mask and you shouldn't, you know, be in big groups and that sort of those last parts kind of fall off. And then everybody sort of goes back and says, hey, it's Memorial Day. Let's go to the beach. I think there are real questions, too, about enforcement here. I mean, I think in some places, yeah, there's there's largely none. And I think even where there sort of are maybe public health officials or, or law enforcement officials who would like to be doing more, I think there are 
sort of hamstrung. There isn't anything they can do if there's not a stay-at-home order in place. I mean, several of us are in Montgomery County or another Maryland county, and we're still on stay-at-home. The state of Maryland is, is open with hard-hit counties not yet being open. So, you know, Julie and I are still in one of the few remaining uh, stay-at-home counties, but it won't last too much longer. But you can see that it's already opening up. You can see more people out. You can see people walking in groups. I'm still home. I mean, I walk. I haven't driven around to more commercial areas to see what's going on. But there's clearly already an activity. Now, can you do that safely? You know, when when the stay-at-home order lifts, you know, am I going to see people more? Yes, but I'm going to see them outside six feet apart and mask. I'm not going to have a dinner party, as, you know, Dr. Burke said. It's not time to throw a, a dinner party for 20. You know, when things are safe, maybe some friends will come sit in the backyard. They may bring their own food and people don't, aren't supposed to share utensils. You're not hearing that. You're not hearing, don't share utensils. Don't share food. If you do something like that, um, it's driving, you know, the environmental issues of throwing out all the forks is going to drive, you know, there's, there's also there are other causes of other trash issues and recycling issues. And we're not being told. We're not being told, figure out the safest way to resume some social activities. You know, yeah, go see your grandma, but don't hug her. No, we're not hearing that. We have to be hearing that. And, and I mean, we're not the only country that has a problem, but we've got a tremendous problem. And it's, it's made worse by not hearing, if everything is politicized, some of this is just common sense, right? Don't share utensils, don't have a buffet, things like that. They're just common sense. But when every, everything is politicized or it's silence. Yeah, I was going to say some of it is, you know, everybody said, well, look, at, you know, the states that opened early, Georgia and Florida, they're not having a spike. Um, now they but- are. First of all, we don't know, as we talked about last week, some of the numbers are being manipulated, but also it, w- it might still be another couple of weeks before we would see a real spike. We're definitely seeing numbers starting to go up in some of these places, but people have this feeling that, oh, okay, I went to the beach and it was fine and I'm home now. Well, it's only been four or five days. You, you know, you might not get sick until a week from now. Uh, and you, and if you get sick, you won't show up in the hospital until a week after that. So we really don't know that much. Right. There's no real understanding of how the virus works. I think even even that basic knowledge is not really understood. I I, I do feel like I mean even though, even in the lack of a national program that that the public health messaging should be I hesitate to use this word but more coordinated. Well, you know, the last really deep national trauma was obviously 9/11 and. We responded as a country differently. And in this trauma, we have not had a God bless America moment. We have not had a come together moment. We have not had help yourselves and help your neighbors moment. I'm sort of surprised the the CDC director, um, Redfield, had had said this on a couple of radio interviews, but it didn't get picked up on. But I I thought it was actually promising and and no one ran with it. And he talked about um, social distancing as being pro-life. And he talked about his own grandson who has a a serious disease. I think it's cystic fibrosis. And he talked about um, protecting other people. And I thought, you know, in a different political environment, some of the conservative evangelicals who were skeptical of, uh, uh, you know, a section of Trump's base that's been skeptical of this. I'm not saying every evangelical sept is, is, you know, defying science or, but there's, there's a sub community, you know, if, if if it was spoken in a different language that they could internalize and embrace instead of this divisive poison we're getting, no matter who the president is, no matter what your politics are, we would have had a pandemic. Nobody could have stopped the virus at the borders. Nobody could have made put the United States of America in a bubble. 
we would whatever you whoever you want to vote for whoever you voted for last time we would have had a pandemic would we have had it play out the way this one played out no but we it, it would still be here but you can see all these missed opportunities and they're not ideological but they were made ideological public health shouldn't be ideological saving lives shouldn't be ideological if there's only one thing we could find common ground in this country it should be saving lives and yet everything, I think, is ideological right now. Um, all right, well, we have some non-COVID news. Um, President Trump has noted uh, that his commanding electoral lead with seniors has been falling dramatically through the COVID crisis. So there was a Rose Garden ceremony this week to unveil a new program that will limit insulin costs to $35 a month for those with standalone prescription drug and Medicare Advantage plans. Um, first question, how great a deal is this really? $35 a month is still a lot for seniors who already pay a lot in Medicare premiums and co-pays. Is, is $35 sort of enough to, to make this really affordable for the the seniors who need it? Yeah, I don't think that um, there are going to be a lot of seniors sort of jumping up and down with the cost of $35 a month. And it's sort of the really the only thing that the administration has really been able to accomplish on drug prices. And we're talking about a very small, compared to the, the entire population who takes prescription drugs, a very small amount of people who are going to be able to benefit. Um, and just the fact that there was a rose garden ceremony um, was very telling on sort of the um, the desire for the administration to pump this up maybe into more than what it what it actually is. Um, you know, I, it was two years ago that the president put out his plan to lower drug prices and none of that has come to fruition. Congress, you know, hasn't been able to to get anything to his desk either. And so there's pressure to say that this is something, but saving seniors, I, I guess the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services said it might be on the range of like $400 or something like that a year um, for some people, which is, is helpful, um, if certainly but not in the range of, of what a lot of people need. And there are a lot, a lot of others on insulin as well. So we're talking again about bringing down the, the cost of drugs to some people, but not the price of drugs, um, which is really what the administration wanted to tackle and hasn't been able to make a bit of a dent in. I did some digging myself because I didn't see it in any of the stories. And, you know, of the, there are a lot of Medicare beneficiaries with diabetes, but most of them don't take insulin. Most of them are type 2 diabetes. They take other medications. So, um, and yes, insulin prices for Medicare have been spiking in recent years, but that's not so much because there's more people taking insulin. It's because the price of insulin has gone up so much. And it's actually, there's what, about 60 million Medicare beneficiaries and about 3 million of them take insulin. So for them, it would be a nice thing, but this is hardly even, you know, a big deal. Can they, can they really turn this into a political achievement when they've, you know, basically reduced costs for one drug for a small percentage of Medicare beneficiaries? Yeah, I think it's, clearly a stretch. I think you could hear in Trump's remarks on Tuesday in the Rose Garden that he he was almost seemed to be begging seniors to notice what he was doing, to pay attention and to think of this as sort of politically advantageous for them. Because I, I think, yeah, I mean, it is not just a small subset of the people who use insulin in this country, which I think, you know, has 
had emerged maybe before the coronavirus pandemic took over as a very hot button issue within the context of healthcare costs and drug pricing in particular. But I think for for him to claim such a big win when he's seen so many of his other much more splashy ideas like importing drugs from Canada, requiring drug makers to put their prices in ads, those have been blocked by court or have sort of since abandoned. And I think the idea that two years after that big glitzy Rose Garden rollout that he was going to do all this work, that this is the thing we're coming back to the Rose Garden just a few months before the 2020 election to really celebrate is sort of a, a stunning reversal from where we were two years ago. I was just going to say it's also a voluntary program where the drug makers and the insurers are deciding to participate in it. It was just very different from Trump standing up there during the campaign and afterwards, you know, going after drug makers and saying that they were responsible for all sorts of awful things and saying that he was going to bring them in line. And obviously, you know, now he's asking them to please help. Please cure COVID. <laughs> I mean, the whole dynamics around drug companies is changing a little bit, too. I think one of the things with insulin is that, you know, we do this for a living. So we know, you know, not every person with diabetes takes insulin and we know that people can't afford things, et cetera. But if you were to, like, give the average person a list of 10 drugs and say which are the expensive ones, they're going to circle insulin and EpiPen. So for the White House to say we've just solved the insulin problem for America's seniors, a lot of people are going to say, oh, they just solved the insulin problem for American seniors. You know, is it going to be the pivotal message in his reelection campaign? No. Is it part of many micro messages that he's going to run on? Yes. I mean, and it's less offensive than some of what we've seen on Twitter this week, right? Uh, yes, I have to add though that because the the story that I read didn't the Kellyanne Conway said that this was not a this was not a politics thing. This was not so much to you know curry favor with seniors. This was because this was due to Medicare open enrollment. And the the reporter did not bother to add the next sentence, which is that Medicare open enrollment is in the fall. <laughs> that we are months away from Medicare open enrollment. So. All right. Well, finally this week, I want to highlight a report from researchers at Georgetown University via the Commonwealth Fund. It seems that while there are lots of requirements for coverage of COVID testing and treatment, and we'll hear about those in the bill of the month, many of those don't apply to those short-term plans that President Trump and the administration have been touting. Many of the ones studied by researchers in this study don't cover anything experimental, which of course is most of the treatments now for COVID since nothing has really been approved. Uh, And lots don't cover prescription drugs at all. So what should we make of this? And what's going to be the reaction of folks who bought these plans because the president told them to? And then we'll find that what they need is not covered. Could this come back politically to bite the president? Or are people just going to continue with their, we hate health insurance companies? Well, there are some provisions that we're still not entirely clear of who's paying for what, how, where, but I mean, hospital bills are supposed to be covered. So whether your insurance does or not, there should be some hospital protection. As we know, it's not, we don't know exactly what it's supposed to look like. There are a lot of questions about hospitals versus doctor bills versus outpatient follow-up, et cetera, et cetera. That's another thing they're saying, you know, COVID bills will be paid. Well, it's not clear that they're all going to be paid. So there is money for that. But a lot of people in healthcare, no matter what it is, always end up with a bill. And it's often a bill bigger than they can pay. And, and I've now heard a lot of cases of people who think they have COVID, call a doctor, are told to go for care, but because there's still a shortage of tests and they're not sick enough, that they don't get the test. And then, of course, if you don't get the test, you have trouble, you know, saying, well, I thought I had COVID and my doctor thought I had COVID and they sent me. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's still... And false negatives. 
because that's yes, also that's still a right. huge problem. You can actually have COVID but not be able to prove it because, I mean, I know someone who was hospitalized and she had three false negatives and she was still treated eventually. I mean, that's what she had. But yeah, um, I have a friend who's been sick for six weeks and finally got tested and it came back negative. And I'm like, I'm sure that's wrong. But yeah. the false negatives is, a, is still uh, a significant problem. The line in that um, Commonwealth Fund report that really struck me was that, um, I mean, these plans can famously deny people coverage for pre-existing conditions. And I do sort of wonder if you somehow get COVID and then decide to go sign up for an insurance plan that the Trump administration has sort of heralded, and they discriminate against any coverage related to COVID because of that. I thought that would be a, a sort of a, a rough end to the, uh, the insurance story there. I mean, the yeah. short-term plans are not really health plans. They're not, legally, they're not health plans. They're not regulated like health plans. They're not required to follow the rules that govern other health plans. So a consumer is offered a health plan, but legally they're sort of a no-man plan. All right. And before yeah. we go to our Bill of the Month interview, Anna, I forgot to ask you before, um, we talked a little bit about this earlier when we were talking about drugs, about sort of uh, manufacturing, moving overseas, and then the sudden realization by Americans that maybe it's not great if our drug supply chain depends on other countries. Um, so there really are efforts to move drug manufacturing back to the U.S. And tell us what you found when you wrote about this. Yeah, there. Um, so there's been sort of a push in the Trump administration among some, not all um, to get drug manufacturing to come back to the U.S. specifically. Um, what sort of seems to be happening and, and what I've found is um, it looks like the industry has said, look, we can't like just also rely only on the U.S. That's a problem as well. What if something happens in the U.S.? But maybe, you know, there should be less reliance on India and China. Let's try to diversify um, somehow. And what the administration um, has has pushed lately, what Trump has um, through BARDA has been um, putting some money into and just did a contract with a, a company in Virginia is to do manufacturing that is updated, is advanced. And that is essentially, you know, it's something called continuous manufacturing is one of the main ways to do this. And what it would do is shrink the footprint of how you make drugs. So you wouldn't need these huge, big factories. It would be much smaller, much less manpower. And so if you wanted to put a factory in the U.S. or anywhere else in maybe Europe or something, it wouldn't cost you as much in labor. So you're not thinking about that cost um, when you're thinking about, well, should I just go to India and China instead? Um, and so they, BARDA gave a $345 million contract to this Virginia company called Flow. It's new. Um, so they don't have their own factory yet. They're going to use some of this money to build one in Virginia. But they're also partnering with some who do already make drugs, Civica RX being one of them. Um, and so that seems to be where where the administration is is headed, is trying to get drug makers to diversify, get out of China, get out of India. And, and COVID has brought that into stark relief, certainly, um, that we might want to be out of those countries to for our drug making capabilities. Or at least less dependent on them. Yeah. Yes, and this yes. is something that had bubbled up before COVID. Um, and it it is not a part of this is not a purely partisan issue. There are both Democrats and Republicans on the Hill who had identified this before the pandemic as saying this is a risk spot for us, partly because the trade tensions with China, it got more attention. This vulnerability and dependency had been identified. And, you know, now it's in sharp relief. We're seeing something happen. But it's it's not a brand new issue. It's an issue that is now in the forefront instead of on simmer. 
Right. And, and it was even even before, you know, we were getting the, the blood pressure pills um, that had carcinogens in them were were coming from China and India. Um, and that had had sort of gotten a lot of people's attention. And that was just uh, just started in July of 2018. Some of those recalls were starting with the blood pressure pills. And so this is like you said, it's been simmering. Um, it had it had gained momentum, and then I think with COVID, it's sort of that it, something could happen. You know, we might not see a lot on drug prices unless that'll kind of depend on what the prices of some of these COVID treatments and vaccines are. I think, um, but um, this could be something we see movement on. Can't wait for that debate. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. That is the news for this week. Now we will play the Bill of the Month interview with Phil Gelwitz, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Phil Gelwitz, who wrote the current Bill of the Month. Welcome back to the podcast, Phil. Thanks for having me, Julie. Uh, this month's patient, not surprisingly, given the times we live in, needed medical care when he was sick with what he thought might be COVID-19. Tell us who he is, where he's from, and what kind of treatment he had. Sure. I talked to Tim Regan, who lives in Denver, and he was sick in March. Actually, his whole family ended up uh, feeling pretty sick with a uh, coughs and cold, and he had a periodic fever. He had this for many days. Uh, finally, in early April, he called in to a nurse hotline run by Denver Health, a large public hospital system. The nurse listened to his symptoms and said, you should come into the urgent care. Uh, he listened to her and that morning, he got in his car and drove a few minutes over to the hospital urgent care. When he arrived there, he was told that all the patients who have possible COVID-like symptoms we're going to be seen in the emergency room, possibly a way that the hospital was trying to make sure that they were keeping those kind of patients away from everybody else. Got to the emergency room. They quickly assessed him. Uh, they gave him an x-ray. They gave him an EKG. He met with the doctor and um, gave him a medication to help out with some of his uh, breathing because he was coughing so much. He often sometimes was out of breath. That was basically it. He was in and out very quick, and he was back home in less than two hours. But he didn't get a COVID test while he was there, right? Correct. Um, he was not tested for COVID because at the time, the hospital was reserving its limited number of COVID tests for sicker patients, those who needed to be admitted to the hospital, and that was not Tim. So his doctor told him to go home and presume that you had COVID and quarantine yourself, keep away from others, stay at home, and go with that and hope for the best. So we've been talking for weeks and weeks about how patients aren't supposed to get billed for COVID testing and treatment, but he did, right? Yes. He ended up a couple of weeks later, Tim was feeling better, and then his family got the bill. And uh, Denver Health charged him over $3,200 for the emergency room visit. Because he has a high deductible health plan, he ended up with a bill that he has to pay out of pocket of over 2300 uh, the Regans were sort of stunned because they were told that United Healthcare, like other insurers, was going to pick up all their COVID testing costs uh, and leave them with no out-of-pocket. And they couldn't understand why he had sought help for possible COVID and then ended up with a large bill. So they called in and tried to work with United Healthcare and tried to get some help. And uh, after several calls, they didn't get anywhere. And that's when they called us at Kaiser Health News. So what ended up happening with the bill? So United Healthcare uh, took another look at the bill 
and took a look at the, the symptoms and the chart. And they did notice that even though he did not receive a test for COVID, he certainly had the symptoms of one who would come in for possible symptoms. And as a result of that, they chose to basically reverse themselves and did not charge the Regents anything for their visit. What happened in hindsight, uh, United Healthcare folks had said, was that there was no coding on the bill that would help them to realize that this was a possible COVID patient. And so the issue looks like it came down to the coding that the Denver Health folks didn't put in the right coding so the people at United Healthcare, when they sent out the bill, would realize that it was possible COVID. So it looks like he did everything right and eventually uh, got, you know, what, what he was supposed to. Uh, but the bill wasn't waived until a reporter stepped in. What should patients in this situation do short of reporting it to their favorite local reporter? Sure. Um, you know, patients need to one look at their bill, first of all, and look at the explanation of benefits that they get from their health insurer to see what they're owed. And then they need to really speak up and not be shy. Even before the bill comes, if they have COVID, is to make sure they tell the provider, please code my visit as possible COVID, because that can signal to their insurer so they mean so they won't get a bill in the first place. If they do get billed mistakenly, um, they should be appealing to their health insurance company, which all health insurers allow, and say this bill is not right, and, most, and health insurers have an appeal system. If that doesn't work, they should appeal to their um, if they work for a large for an employer, they should talk to their employee benefits department who can act on their behalf. If that doesn't work, they can complain to their state insurance department on their behalf and make a complaint. And obviously, if all else fails, there's a link for you to submit your bill for COVID or for anything else to our Bill of the Month team on the podcast page at khn.org. Phil Gelwitz, thanks so much. You're welcome. Okay, we are back, and it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Erin, why don't you go first this week? So I wanted to highlight an excellent story from William Wan and Carolyn Johnson at the Washington Post called Coronavirus May Never Go Away Even With a Vaccine. Um, and it looks at the very likely possibility that this virus will become endemic the same way conditions like measles, HIV, and the chickenpox are sort of always constantly circulating in the world. Um, I think we've known about that possibility, certainly from a scientific perspective, for a while. But this story did a really nice job of looking at the sort of policy and public health ramifications of the knowledge of that future sort of endemic disease, uh, and also at how little U.S. policymakers have really done to prepare for what an endemic coronavirus will look like. Uh, Instead, I think they're mostly sort of holding out hope for a silver bullet that could address this, get rid of it entirely, which scientists don't think is possible. Oh, sigh. Joanne. Um, I chose a New Yorker piece called The Town That Tested Itself. It's I've seen it with various headlines, so choose your own headline adventure. It's by Nathan Heller. When I clicked on it, I did not know that the town was Bolinas, California. Um, it is a town that is described, it's a small town north of San Francisco, described as full of aging artists and hippies. And I did not know when I clicked that it was you know, it is Bellinas, and I have an aging artist hippie cousin there, so I know Bellinas fairly well. And they, they tested the entire town in three days um, in April. The, it's a small town, but they tested everybody, and they got everybody their results. And they did it in cooperation with the University of UCSF, University of California at San Francisco. So not only did they have people who knew what they were doing, 
testing them. They became a research center. They got everybody's tests back to them in pretty quickly. And they're doing antibody tests without sharing the results yet because the people, antibody tests, there's a lot of questions about accuracy and what the immunity means, how much immunity, et cetera, et cetera. But they're doing it as a research project to study this unusual, somewhat self-contained aging hippie and conclave in companionship with a similar study going on in the mission of San Francisco, which is a much more diverse and open urban area. So it shows that A, you can test everybody, B, you can get accurate results, C, you can get the results back to people, and D, you can use it to further our understanding, not only to protect one community, but to help scientists learn how it spreads and compare it to other more diverse uh, economically, geographically, and racial communities. Little public health victories where we can get them. Anna. So um, this is from the New York Times. I'd file this under um, stories I wish I had written. So this is wealthiest hospitals got billions in bailout for struggling health providers. Um, it's by Jesse Drucker, Jessica Silver, Greenberg, and Sarah Cliff. It shows that the 20 large chains um, received more than $5 billion in in some of these bailout funds. And they're sitting on $150. Five billion, I think, was the number in cash, and so these are you know your hospital chains are um, a lot of them have been you know, partnering with private equity, um, invest in venture capital. They're they're very Wall Street focused. They don't seem to be um, hurting kind of in the same way as you might think of as your local hospital. And it was really interesting to see that they got this much money. I think it's sort of. You know, if you if you want to be annoyed, read it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that. All right. Well, mine this week is a wild story from ProPublica. And yes, I realize that's kind of redundant called the feds gave a former White House official three million dollars to supply masks to Navajo hospitals. Some may not work. It's by Yagana Torbati. I hope I didn't torture that name too much. And Derek Willis. It's about a former deputy chief of staff uh, to President Trump with no federal contracting experience who left the White House, uh, started a PPE company when he saw that that was a thing. And 11 days after starting the company, got a $3 million contract to provide masks to the Navajo Nation hospitals. The Navajo, if you don't know, have been hit very hard by COVID-19, among other things, because many tribe members lack running water, which makes it difficult to wash your hands very often. And surprise, it turns out a quarter of a million of the masks were found to be, quote, unsuitable for medical use. Another 130,000 were not the type that were specified in the procurement data. Uh, And that's all just in the first four paragraphs of the story. It gets wilder and you should definitely read it. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even if we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at E.E. Mershon. At Joanne Cannon. At Anna Edney. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.